Well, uh, you probably you're a fan of movies, aren't you? I'm a big fan of movies. You, well, all right. Uh, Basket Case. You know Basket Case. Basket Case. No, oh, you missed that one, huh? Well, that's a story of these two Siamese twin brothers, and one of them looks like a midget squashed octopus, and the other one carries him in a picnic basket underneath his arm, and they live in this loft overlooking Times Square, and whenever anybody opens up the picnic basket, they get their face eaten off. Blood, like you. Know, surely you've seen Night of the Living Dead. I have seen that. Greatest zombie movie ever made, right? A fine, fine zombie film. Uh, okay, that would be like a beast movie. One of your best zombie that movies. That would be, yeah. Okay, breast movie would be like Gas Pump Girls. I know you've seen that one, you know. Gas Pump Girls. Now, now I remember in the book, the ending's a bit different in the Gas No, I didn't, I didn't see it. No, that you, that's the European version. But, oh, that's right. You know, but, uh, that's right. I had read the book. See, and they, so, uh, I Dismember Mama. You ever see that one? I Dismember Mama? I Dismember Mama. Oh, no. <laughs> A lot of that I Dismember uh, Mama. Is that, I, now, was that a real movie, I Dismember? That's a real movie. It came out about 1972, and he dismembers Mama. That's about, no, the, that's about all there is to it. There's no picking up the pieces at the end in there. Anyway. No. I see. Well, let me ask you. Now, now folks that grew up, perhaps, in, in New York City or, or, or... If you've ever been to New York City, you know that down on 42nd Street... That's the equivalent of the drive-in in New York City. They've got... <laughs> I've been into some of those places. They've got... Uh, my, my favorite movie that they show there is uh, always three kung fu hits. Uh, that's been running for years there. And uh, that's, that's, you, you've seen it, have you? I bring that up to the counter, and the woman looks at me like I'm trying to buy an aborted fetus or something. Radio Drome. Thursday night is upon us. I am Josh Hadley. You are listening to Radio Drome. Normally, Peter and Cecil would be here and we'd be talking about 1979, but Cecil is completely whipped and decided that I can't record it on Easter Sunday. I have to go to my wife's parents' house. So we'll do 1979 next week. So I got Fred to sit in because Peter had stuff to do. He's Canadian, so Canadian stuff. Hey, Fred. Hello. Partly part of the Radiodrome B team since 2000. Who knows? Your A squad. If you guys need any kind of sex toys, videos, or anything, you go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, and you will get 10 free gifts on top of whatever you order. You'll get six free DVDs, a free mystery gift, gift for him, a gift for her, and free U.S. shipping. All you have to do is use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Now, tonight, what we're going to talk about is... Film fans. I'm not talking about, like, you know, Cecil and I did an episode a while ago about weird fandoms and whatnot. No. This is Fred's idea, which I kind of mutated into something else. But why are we such huge film fans? Why why is it that we dig into the minutiae? We want to know all the actors. We're able to identify the cinematographers. We get listen to all the commentary tracks. We read all the books. We buy the comics, the novelizations, the action figures. We're the ones who's, who see an obs- obscure Civic TV t-shirt on somebody walking down the street, and we immediately go, the one you take to bed with you. Us and that other person are the only ones who get it. Why are we the film fans that we are? Obviously, there's going to be different tiers for different people, obviously. The first tier, I think, is the most obvious. If you fall in love with filmmaking and love movies, part of you might want to make movies, so you just want to learn everything you can, and we can always explore that a little bit more. But the one that I think... I've noticed the most is like when you start getting into groups, like you got the horror groups, you've got the Trekkies, you've got the anime heads. And I honestly think it's, it is just a kind of a social thing. Now, mindly, I'm only talking partially here. I'm not saying with everybody, just partially. I think that it's a secret language that we uh, adapt and adopt with each other that allows us to speak to each other and intentionally keeps certain people at bay whether we like it or not people are clicky people who tend to like these type of movies or geekdom in general you know they tend to be social outcasts it it does seem to be the norm for the most part so i i do i think it's kind of like a secret language do you think the internet has made it 
more widespread or more more inclusive or more exclusive. The internet has done both good and bad for the hardcore film goer. I think this was demonstrated to me just this week. Mike White pointed this out. I, I can't disagree with him. Batman vs. Superman just opened a few days before, and Fred and I hated it. Mike White hated it, you know. Any, any rational thinking person hated it, so that's why Cecil loved it, but whatever. The intellectuals. Exactly. <laughs> I love Cecil. Come on, you know, I gotta get it. Oh, so do I. I'm teasing completely. At least before our screening, the Civil War trailer was on it, which, by the way, I find super ironic that there's a Marvel Comics trailer before a DC Comics movie. I'm sure neither company is happy about that, but whatever, that's a different discussion. We all have known Spider-Man is in this, and it's been such a big deal, and we've all known since they first cast Tom Holland and all of this and the first photos and blah, blah, blah. There was a collective gasp in both my theater and Mike White's the one that pointed this out when people, the general public, saw this and was like, oh my God, Spider-Man's going to be in this movie I already want to see too. In a weird way... Us being internet film nerds, we kind of take for granted that we already knew this, that the mainstream didn't. Does that strike you as somewhat odd that probably three-quarters of the people who are going to go see Captain America Civil War didn't know Spider-Man was going to be in it before this weekend? I guess this is the difference between the the idea of knowledge and wisdom. You know, the, the internet provides plenty of knowledge, but those who followed it and absorbed it and taken it in you know it becomes a part of them it's part of their life and as i said about earlier about that language you know they speak it very well they speak it fluently among each other so as far as the the trailer is concerned it does seem sometimes like it's like if you watch tv well there's ads all over tv if you're into the internet it's everywhere on the internet so it does make you wonder how did they miss it because if they care if they care that spider-man just appeared how did you not know this beforehand? Really? It's it's weird. I don't know if I can come up with a direct answer because I really don't know how they missed it. Like I said in, in the intro, we know the cinematographers and all of the actors and the director and the writer, and we know maybe a movie had lots of production problems. Your average person off the street just wants to go see... Do they just want to go see the new Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movie? They have no idea who directed it. They don't know who wrote it. They don't know who Jeremy Renner is. They don't know who any of these people are. All they know is, hey, look, it's a Tom Cruise spy flick. It makes us somewhat arrogant about film because we know more about it. The same way, if you just wander in on a sun in the fall, you wander into a bar on a Sunday evening and you don't know anything about football. You're going to feel like you're an idiot, and you're going to feel like you're not part of this club. In a weird way, it makes us arrogant, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it does. Uh, I, I remember going to a con in Chicago. It was a Star Trek convention, and the people were so snobby about this episode, that episode, this actor, that episode, that actor. Yeah, I got a firsthand look at that, and it's like, I guess I've done that to people, too, that don't know the directors of certain films from, say, 1940 or 50 or Treasure Sea or Madre or whatever film. So, yeah, the answer is definitely. I think we're all guilty of that in some respect. Why do you, Frederick Fritz, why why do you want to know who the cinematographer is? And you know, you know, the different editor, you know, you know, well, the guy who edited Transylvania 65000 is also the guy who re-edited Orson Welles on Touch of Evil. Does that take away anything from Touch of Evil, or does it add anything to Transylvania 65000? Does it really matter if we know that? Why do we seek out that kind of knowledge? I'd have to say that maybe in a weird sort of way, it's the same thing that somebody gets when two of their favorite comic book characters come together. They, somebody likes the Punisher, somebody likes Spider-Man, and what happens when Punisher meets Spider-Man? Uh, you're excited to see what the combination brings. And for those of us who really love the behind-the-scenes stuff, that's a that's about as close as a comparison I can get because you're excited. You go, okay, this director's shown so much potential with this, but now they're working with that cinematographer. What will this combination bring? Uh, I tend to maybe even get a little more excited, say, about a screenwriter and say, oh, you know, this was uh, John Sayles doing that script and for that particular director. And those type of things can be exciting because you just think, oh, these two coming together, it's it's sort of a powerhouse, you know, a, a Justice League, if you will, when you get enough names piled into it. Uh, Caddyshack 
type effect with, oh my gosh, look at all these great comedic actors and Harold Ramis is directing it. Oh my gosh. You know? and, but for me personally, by the way, is I wanted to be a filmmaker since I was a kid. So I, I my dad as a present bought me a subscription to Premier Magazine. And that was, I was really into that. And I would read, you know, they had the Gaff Squad, which was a section at the front that told you about all the mistakes in movies. And I loved reading that just so I could go back, rewatch those movies and see the mistakes and uh, learn you hope them. to learn. Yeah, that's it. You want to learn from them and you want to learn from these directors. And uh, over time you start to pick or, you, you pick up those little signature things that like one of my favorite directors, you know, is John Carpenter. And uh, you can recognize, even if someone didn't tell you this was a John Carpenter movie, you could watch and go, Oh gosh, that's, that's JC all the way. That also leads to a, somewhat of an arrogance with us film nerds, I think, is that we see styles and things like that that your average person off the street – and I'm not meaning that in a demeaning way. I'm just saying the people who may probably don't even know who John Carpenter is, even if they've seen They Live and Escape from New York and all that, they probably have no idea that th those movies were made by the same person. On the other hand, we're able to look at certain things and see styles. For instance – you ever, you've seen the, have you ever heard of the TV series Charlie Jade from the early 2000s? It was a Canadian-South African production. Yes, you told me about it, and unfortunately I did not get around to watching it. Okay, well, since it takes place in South Africa where it was shot, and it was shot by South African directors. Well, as I'm watching this, and I didn't realize this at the time that I was putting it together in my head, I'm like, this reminds me so much of Richard Stanley. Why? Why does this remind me of Richard Stanley? I'm like, Richard Stanley's British, but then I find out he's also South African. And somehow, Hardware, Dust Devil, and the Charlie Jade Show, even though they have no crew members in common, just they're all from South Africa, there's a certain style to it that I picked up on that I'm not sure someone who just caught a Charlie Jade episode at 3 in the morning on Sci-Fi Channel would go, wow, this really reminds me of that Dust Devil movie. There's a, I think it's in certain countries, there's a rhythm. It's not unlike, say, when you, you could tell something has a very British sense of humor. It's, you can tell there's a sardonic nature. There's a pentameter to the way they delivered their lines and you can recognize it. So as we learn more and our world gets smaller and smaller, we start to recognize those styles. They become uh, more intrinsic. I, I remember when I interviewed Albert Pune, I had asked him if Hong Kong movies had had an influence on him because it looked like it, and it, it had. And not only that, he actually had gone to Japan and studied Toshiro Mofune, and, uh, you know, so you got the Akira Kurosawa connection, and he w was a huge admirer of the Choi Hark and the John Woo and all that, and you can totally see that in his films. So, yeah, definitely, there's a rhythm and a style to those things. Do you think that access to more information makes a better film nerd or when you had to fight for it? For instance, like we had to go dig through old Fangoria's and Starlog magazines and our Bible was Psychotronic, the Psychotronic video guide. Everyone I knew who was into trash cinema had – they updated it every couple of years. We had the Psychotronic video guide sitting next to our table. Now you've got IMDIB. Has it really changed the way the film nerd – gets the information or is it just the format has changed well there's more information out there i keep having this conversation over and over with people about now that the technology has come home quite literally video cameras video editing but not only that we have film school in a can dvds blu-rays have elaborate making ofs you can go to youtube and watch full latex monster masks made and yet where are where are the, the small filmmakers? Uh, yes, of course, there's a few here or there on YouTube doing things, but even they don't seem to do much. Where are the guys and gals picking up that camera and making their movie? Where are these? You think we would be we would be in the thousands, maybe the tens of thousands. We certainly have that in cat videos, but and yet we don't have those filmmakers. We don't have them blowing our minds. And I think this comes back to the answer I've gotten from several filmmakers, I mentioned about Albert Pugh and I inter interviewed him not to, I'm not dropping the name on this. Just the question came up to him. I said, how come we don't have more filmmakers with all this stuff that we have with all this access? He said it right to the point that because people are basically lazy, making movies is hard. It is work. Anybody who's worked on a film set or tried to make their own film, be it a short film or feature length, it's hard 
freaking work. It takes time to learn this stuff. Even with all this access to DVDs, Blu-rays, YouTube, books. Oh, gosh. You said about the uh, the Psychotronic book. Go to the bookstore, if you can find one now, and all the film books, all the glorious, wonderful film books that are out there. And it's it seems like it's a wasteland for filmmakers. So I think it applies to what people have said over and over again. It Just because people are generally lazy and when they find out how much work it is, you know, maybe that's why we get more films that are of the trauma variety and, and, and less of, say, the Coens or Orson Welles or any other name you want to throw down being snobby. The studios actually in, in our day would cater only to the mainstream. Let's look at the, the format of Laserdisc. N- not the format itself, but since Laserdisc was seen as a, quote, collector's format – Laserdisc is where you had the commentary tracks and the making ofs and the detailed, you know, the big album-sized booklets with all the behind-the-scenes minutiae and all that. We had to fight for a commentary track on a Laserdisc back in the day. You, you didn't get them as often as now every DVD has got a commentary track almost. Every, every movie that comes out, you know it's going to have the commentary and whatnot. Do you think that kind of thing actually makes things better or worse? One of the things that bothers me the most about the, the YouTube film nerd, the, the, there's like a weird built-in arrogance. Like the Channel Awesome people always do these like 11 facts you didn't know about Batman, the 1989 movie. Mm-hmm. Every single one is even in the order that they're, that they're talked about on the commentary. And I'm like, so you watched the commentary and you made a video about it and you made a ton of money. That's just arrogant to me. It's like th- this is the part that always bothers me. The things you didn't know. And it's like, well, until you listen to the commentary, asshole, you didn't know it either. Well, the uh, as far as the guys like that who do, uh, since you brought up Channel Awesome, well, there are other people, but they specifically, I, I saw a video where Doug was being asked about how you can become a successful video reviewer. And this is back when they were still on Blip, but he was referring to their YouTube. And one of the things he even mentioned was making sure you review relevant topics to put in the title. So in other words, when you post up, it's Nostalgia Critic and whatever the most recent trending thing is. Like when they covered The Room, well, it was because Riff Tracks had already done The Room. It was trending. I'm sure we'll get a Batman versus Superman something, you know? That's what they do. They they put up 25 facts you didn't know about Back to the Future. Or It's always about films that are huge, uh, that that will will trend when they put the title up and they know people are going to click on it. That's why they do that. It's the only reason they do that, and people fall for it. It's clickbait. It always comes across as so arrogant, though. It is arrogant. You didn't know. Well, it is arrogant, but sad to say, like with younger people, though, you know, they probably didn't. I'm not sticking up for them. It's said that people don't go out there and hunt this information down for themselves. It's out there. That's what appeals to them, and I hear younger people parroting the stuff all the time, and... So it works. <laughs> because like it even comes down to I see list after list on various sometimes sometimes websites that I, I really do like will be like the twenty five horror films you've never seen. And I go through the list and I'm like, I've seen twenty three of these. Because it's clickbait. Again, it there's not much else to that. We know these films. Anybody that's got any love or passion for this stuff has seen majority of those films always. And not probably not all, but it doesn't matter. We look for films, and you talked about the laser discs with commentary in it. It's the same with all this stuff. It's the hunt. We have the passion, so we go on the hunt. You were talking about before internet. Well, before internet, if we wanted some obscure, crazy movie, we had to hit every convention. We would go to flea markets. We would go to pawn shops, and we would look for these rare, obscure gems. Not because it made us smarter or we thought we could do a series of videos on them. We did it because we really genuinely wanted to see them. And it's weird to us. It's alien to us now. Here we are, us older fogies, I guess. There's these, this younger generation, and they can eBay it. They can go to Amazon. Or they can just go to YouTube and watch somebody do a 25-minute summation of the hour and a half we had to watch. It's really alien to me to see this sometimes. And to have people talk to me about these movies I was passionate about, these crazy B-films, but really they only have the Cliff Notes version. And I can hear them... Their opinion seems to be based more on whatever that reviewer was saying about it. 
as opposed to did you see it for yourself? Did you like it yourself? What did you like? What didn't you like? What scenes? Did you, well, you've only seen the scenes in the 25-minute review, so you're parroting whatever nostalgia check or critic or, or dog critic or whoever else is out there. So it, it's a, I think it's just more alien for us is what the problem is. Well, let's shift focus a little bit then and talk about just the difference between – see, I, I, I find that there's a weird difference. Now, this is probably pure arrogance and pure ego on my part. So if anybody calls me on that, they're probably right. I think there's a weird difference between people like you and I and Cecil and Brad Jones and Peter and stuff like that. We'll, we'll go out and get the original film poster or maybe we'll have a t-shirt with, like I brought up before, like the Civic TV logo or something like that versus the people who will go and buy a Wonder Woman t-shirt from Target because she was in that new movie that they just saw. I don't know if there is a difference between what we do when it comes to merchandise or collecting versus what the mainstream does because in a weird way, if you can buy it at a hot topic, I don't know, somehow that's a turnoff to me. Whereas if I got to buy it from some sleazy eBay person, somehow it feels more authentic. (laughs) Boy, uh, yeah, I I think, again, that comes down to maybe there's a little bit of uh, territorial instinct kicking in on that a little bit. And you know that they're out there hunting on hot topics. So you try to one up them by finding that even more obscure (laughs) item just to make sure you're not wearing the same exact shirt with the same exact character or design. Uh, the the idea of bringing up that obscure fact, uh, it's sad because, you know, now that's the realm of the hipster, isn't it? I, I, I remember the joke. I know you don't like red letter media, but I thought this was a really funny joke where uh, this one hipster's in their store and he brings out a quill and he says, I refuse to support the big corporate pin industry. <laughs> And I thought that was funny. And that's kind of what we're talking about here is the the one better. It, it, I guess it doesn't bother me as much. It's What bothers me is when, again, you get that person that doesn't genuinely love this stuff and tries to pass off like they do. That's the only thing that's ever really irritated me when I'm in a conversation and I, I can tell right away you don't really love this stuff. You haven't seen it for yourself. You you have no thoughts that, you're, that are your own. And Sort of sounds like Invasion of the Body Snatcher sometimes, doesn't it, when you come across those people? Mass merchandising versus just merchandising. And again, this is probably coming from a place of pure ego and hubris on my part. I have a Fight Club t-shirt I bought at Target, and the irony of that is not lost on me. At the same time, I think an average person who might even not who, – who might be one of the weirdos that actually remembers that Brad Pitt movie, Fight Club – they're not going to even notice the irony that they bought a Fight Club t-shirt mass-produced at Target. Fight Club was a movie that was watched and purchased and traded. But the point of Fight Club was all anti-consumerism, so the irony is that it's mass-produced for the masses, isn't it? Well, it it is. That's that's like the the, uh, rich liberal that lives like a capitalist but, you know, condemns capitalism. That's... The joke. That's the irony. That's what else can you do about it? I mean, wasn't it George Lucas that was talking about he did the Star Wars as this sort of like anti-technology film, but was utilizing technology to tell the story about defeating an empire that he himself became himself, you know, an empire that he was going against. That's what happens. It's just part of the game. As far as for us, it's concerned. I think it's one of two ways. We can complain all we want about this stuff, but sometimes, you know what? It's kind of cool to be able to to get that T-shirt we couldn't have had back in 1990 unless we rummaged for it. Is there a built-in arrogance when it comes to like our film knowledge and even like our collecting and all that when it comes to lack of film knowledge or lack of desire for film knowledge? For instance... I can't even count with you know remakes being so omnipresent out there nowadays. I can't even count how many times I'll be talking to somebody at a store or whatnot, and I'll mention you know about such and such movie. Oh, the original was better. The original? Mm-hmm. They have no idea that the movie that they just saw. You don't know how many people in 2004 were genuinely surprised. I worked at a movie theater at the time. Were genuinely surprised when I mentioned the 1978 Dawn of the Dead. They're like, it's a remake. I wanted to jump across the counter and straddle these people with milk duds. Is is it weird that, that they don't have any knowledge? That they don't want to know about anything that's not now? Well, that's where we get into the general movie-going audience versus the, the actual film lover. 
And I'd say if you're just a general audience, no, there's no obligation any more than if you happen to sit down and watch a baseball game. You have to know every freaking player that existed all the way back to when, you know, somebody threw a rock at a guy with a with a stick. It's just one of those things. If they're general moviegoers and they want to sit down for an hour and a half, forget their problems and eat popcorn, I have no problem with that. My personal problem, as I've already stated, is when they try to pass themselves off as something they're not. And that's irritating. That's bothersome because they act conceited about it. They, they're they the haughty ones in this situation. They're looking down at you as if you don't know. And I've, I've run into that so many times that it disgusts me. What about when you get... Because well, we've been talking about, you know, we seek out the behind-the-scenes stories and all that. Mm-hmm. What about when you get different versions of the behind-the-scenes stories? Does oh. that... Uh, for instance, like, you'll have a commentary track on a laser disc that, you know, lays out such and such and such line of events for how the movie got made. Then you see the DVD with a new commentary track by the same people, and they give all the all completely opposite information. And you're kind of mm-hmm. like, so were you lying then, or are you lying now? How does that affect us as film nerds, since we're the ones who are always authoritative because we've read the books and seen the commentaries and all that? How does that sit with us when we're not sure whether the information we have is right? For instance, the famous alternate ending in quotes to King Kong versus Godzilla from Famous Monsters of Filmland. Famous Monsters of Filmland was the magazine for monster kids to read. Mm-hmm. And when Godzilla versus when King Kong versus Godzilla came out, they said that there were two different endings. That there was an ending where God- Godzilla won that was released in Japan and an ending where King Kong won that was released in America. So for years, for decades, all of us movie-going fans were always searching for that because we could only ever find the one where they where, Ki- where Godzilla wins. We were so trying to find the King Kong wins ending, the, quote, the American ending, if you will. And we couldn't. Why? That story was false. For years, we'd all been basing it off of that famous Monsters of Filmland article, and it was wrong. Does that make us the saps, then, as the as the film nerds? It does seem that way sometimes. It, it seems like that comes down to that contempt that writers, directors, and filmmakers in general, that love-hate relationship they have with their audience. They, they love that people love movies, they want to share their movies, but when it comes to sharing a bit of themselves with us, they, they suddenly come very standoffish and seem disgusted by us and that's again that's a weird contrast uh the one that bugs me and has drove has driven me nuts uh we were just talking about wd richter earlier uh the buckaroo bonsai guy uh the one story that always irritated me when i found out that he's i know more about him now he's a fibber for those who don't know he likes spinning stories and oh no, he, he, he's a troll. That'd be the oh. word we'd use today. He, he, he's, okay, he's a for troll. For years, he trolled yeah. magazines with behind-the-scenes stories that were patently false. I wouldn't call him a liar. I would just say he was screwing with you. Well, definitely. But since he's lying, I call lying those who tell lies a liar. So I'm gonna still call him a liar. By the way, I still like him as a writer and director. So you know, I say that more in jest. But he told the story that. Big Trouble in Little China, which his name is listed on as a screenplay writer, was the sequel to Buckaroo Banzai that we were promised at the end of Buckaroo Banzai. That it would been rewritten since Buckaroo Banzai wasn't happening. It had been rewritten and it was now Big Trouble in Little China. He's the one that said this story. I quoted that for years. <laughs> And of course, it seems supported. There's his name, right? It's right there on Big Trouble in Little China. Also, the fact that Big Trouble in Little China really feels like it could have been the World Crime League. Yes. Oh, definitely. Because there, I forget the name of the villain that was supposed to be in Big Trouble. But come on, uh, James Hong's character looks like him, or at least sounded like him. Uh, A a Chinese underground crime league, you know, uh, led by a shadowy figure. And I thought, oh, okay. No, he was fibbing, lying, telling tales out of school, patrolling, whatever. It was was 100% dookie. (laughs) That really irked me later on when I found out that that's not the truth at all. That's not how the film came about. You know, like Famous Monsters of Filmland was a pretty well-selling magazine read by everybody in the horror film field, if nothing else. Undoubtedly, yes. You hear it quoted constantly. No, you you guys got to remember, Fangoria is not around yet, and, you know, some of the larger monster magazines, the horror magazines, are not around at this point. So it's a trusted source. 
And when they're that wrong, I think that makes us as the film nerds, that makes us arrogant by giving them so much credibility. You know, it comes down to, I know you were a, a huge fan of this magazine, like Film Threat. I don't know 100% how honest they were. They came across as somehow way more honest than Premiere and Entertainment Weekly did covering the same movies, didn't they, for some reason? Didn't Film Threat come across as somehow more credible by the fact that they were completely independent and not corporate, even if they were giving the same information? Well, they they had that great selling technique of, oh, let us tell you what really happened. You know, like you were getting insider gossip. You know, in, in many ways, I guess they're... They were the equivalent of what we would have as TMZ now. You know, we're going to tell you something you shouldn't know. And it it's not as big or as quite as sleazy coming off as TMZ. Chris Gore, you know, things later on came to light. You know, not everything was truthful and he could be a bit vindictive. And some of his stories reflected that. That doesn't take away my memories of that magazine. I loved that magazine. And just like many other more obscure sources it led me to some films i wouldn't have normally found okay and some weird ones too some just total gems so i'm i'll always be thankful for magazines like film threat i love that magazine and it, it got you know guys that would probably never get an interview got an interview <laughs> in that magazine and i don't know they were proud to talk to people that that premiere or people or us or any of those type of magazines would have never touched and for that, I, I think they're pretty awesome. And I will always think they're pretty awesome for that reason. Do you go for the novelizations, which I know is kind of a dead art. You know, the novelization back in the days before video was how you relived a movie. But the amazing thing about novelizations was they had to be written, obviously, before the final cut of the film is done. And they were always based off this, the shooting script. So almost always they differed greatly from the movie that came out by usually having way more deleted scenes than the movie could have ever sustained because they were going off of the script. I remember loving the arrogance that I got from having read the novelization of novelizations of all these classic horror and sci-fi films and knowing about all the scenes that you didn't see. So I did, I used to have that same kind of arrogance of the 25 things you didn't know about Ghostbusters. I used to have that. Are we really any different or are the novelizations kind of thing Really, just what the same – is that what the YouTube videos are, really? Yes, I, I would say they are, ultimately. It, it, you know, what it comes down to is, is we're not the filmmakers. We're the hunter-gatherers of information, and it, it's just a matter of finding the information and whether or not you pass it on. And that's really all there is to this, if you think about it. It doesn't really matter the source, as, a, as long as it's, you know, it's honest, as we've already covered. It sucks when you get bad information. And the grapevine effect happens, too. Those things we were talking about earlier from, you know, Mo Watch Mojo or Nostalgia Critic, they're not always right. And that bugs me, too. I don't know about you, but that drives me nuts when you're like, no, that fact is not a fact. There is a lot of videos. There, there are commentaries that everyone can hear. Deleted scenes, uh, making ofs, documentaries. It is harder to be that snob today. It really is. Uh, I would say not the same type of books, but I would say books are where I'm turning to now. As books become less popular, they seem to be a great source, a great wealth of knowledge. And again, that love and that passion for what we loved comes through. You know about this book very much, uh, but the the Empire of the Bees, the mad movie world of Charles Band. We've talked about this before. It's by Dave J. And, and you this... and I will be talking about it again down the line. Hint, hint. Hint, hint, hint. Yes. A nice little segue. But seriously, this was a wonderful find. Okay. I couldn't afford it for very long because I was homeless for two years, people. It really is a treasure trove. And there's a lot in this book you're not going to find floating around the internet, at least not until one of those guys reads it and puts it out there. The last Delirium issue nine Mm -hmm. the, the Charles Band's magazine. I used some of my research on The Alchemist in the article on The Alchemist I wrote in that in that magazine. Yeah, so I've now put it out there in a much more mainstream way by putting it out in an over-the-counter magazine. Yeah, it's it's a snake eating its own tail. Ultimately, we do not have the uh, exclusive on this information. If it's if it's in a book and it's published. You know, we love to pass this information on to people. But I'll tell you the truth. I think that 
even though, yes, there's some snobbery, I don't know about you, but it's great finding a fresh mind that's actually interested in this stuff. And I get a real buzz out of being that guy that gets to tell them about it and sort of, here, have you seen this? Have you seen that? Oh, if you like that, you should check this out. And, and hey, tell me more. And you, you get to talk to him about it. And it makes you feel a bit like a mentor, you know, maybe in a weird sort of way. That's what good teachers feel like. And, you know, I'm 46 and I now see guys 10, 15, 20 years later and they are they're surpassing me in their film knowledge. And you know what? That's actually kind of awesome. But then it also comes down to how in this day and age can you get so much information wrong? I was reading a book who I'm not going to give the title or authors to on the history of adult cinema. You know, it was a, it was a history of porno and some they touched on how porno was portrayed in the mainstream. And they're talking about the 1979 Paul Schrader film Hardcore. They spend an entire chapter talking about how Hardcore and Rod Steiger's amazing performance in the film. <laughs> okay. For those that don't know, Rod Steiger is not in Hardcore. It's George C. Scott that they met. The entire chapter of this book constantly mentions Rod Steiger as starring in the 1979 Paul Schrader film Hardcore. I put the book down after that. I said, you, this book came out in like 2013. You really couldn't have fucking IMDb'd this movie to know that Rod fucking Steiger is not the star of this film. If you can't do your research, I'm not reading your book. How in this day and age do you fuck up that hard, Fred? Or is it only, or is it, or is it only someone like me who's going to get mad that they're crediting Rod Steiger in hardcore? How did this get passed? Because apparently they said it multiple times, right? Oh, yeah. They constantly were talking about his amazing performance. And then for a second, I thought, is Rod Steiger in that? I haven't seen the movie in like 15 years. I'm like, is he in it? And then I'm like, holy shit, they mean George C. Scott. It could be. Now, that could be just that genuine mistake. How many times have you and I talked about a movie and we said the wrong act? It, right. it can happen. We're we weren't printing a book. A book. But yeah. we're also not in a book that's going past an editor, probably past a senior editor and the publisher before it actually gets sold somewhere and nobody noticed this. Then I put that really on that end of it. I would really put that more on the editor. It's like, were you checking this? Were you fact checking? Were you backing this up? Because if you're doing a whole chapter on a particular movie, it might help to know who the freaking star is. There's, there's also a weird anti-arrogance that comes with us being – we're all trash cinema fans. And I use that word – I love the term trash cinema because really that's what it is. These movies are trashy, but mm -hmm. they're lovely. Recently, about a year ago, I was at a St. Vincent de Paul. I'm just looking through the DVDs. It's all mainstream crap. Tom Cruise movies, Adam Sandler movies, all this tens and 20 copies of Air Force One on DVD and all this. And I'm like, crap, 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 crap. And then I see the Troma logo on one. And I'm like, oh, cool. Demented Death Farm Massacre. So I bring that up to the counter, and the woman looks at me like I'm trying to buy an aborted fetus or something. And then she picks it up and starts reading the back of the box, and she's like rolling her eyes. And then she goes, why would you want to watch this trash? I was kind of offended. At that point, I didn't know Demented Death Farm Massacre was a film I'd already seen under a different title. I didn't realize that was a retitling. How in the hell can you turned down a movie called Demented Death Farm Massacre for 99 cents. Whereas she's looking at me as, how could you waste 99 cents on a movie called Demented Death Farm Massacre? Would you have not bought Demented Death Farm Massacre for 99 cents with that for Trump nine logo on it? Oh, of course. Of course I would. That Just that title alone, you're like, oh, I got to see just how demented this farm is. I have to know. By the way, you've actually just hit something that does irritate the living daylights out of me, and I really hate it. Uh, once in a great while, I understand it is a marketing tool to help people who didn't see one movie get a chance to see it. Okay? I understand that. But I hate, hate, hate when they retitle movies, especially movies that have been around 15, 20 years. Irritates me to no end. That was and the entire Italian exploitation business uh, model. Yeah, and Troma is now currently doing this. Actually, they're on their their actual page on YouTube. They're they're repackaging all of their older films, and uh, that's a bit shady because it's like, yeah, I know they're shady, and that's their model, but but this is shady to their customers, and that's where I always thought they kind of drew the line. If you well, know what well, I mean. But you, you get that a lot, especially when it comes to trash cinema, that are trying to sell their movies to the mainstream. I bought an, uh, an eight-movie DVD set for like $1.99 or something from the grocery store a couple of years ago. 
Six of them were asylum flicks, you know, like Mega Piranha and stuff like that. And then it had on the 1979 movie Piranha Piranha, which they just titled Piranha. And then it had on the old Attack of the Giant Leeches. What was weird about this was they had a new cover for the Piranha and Attack of the Giant Leeches that made them look like modern asylum films. And I thought, that is so disingenuous. Anyone who's paying $1.99 for these eight movies is probably not going to care that Attack of the Giant Leeches is in black and white and looks nothing like the cover you gave it. Or that Piranha, it's actually called Piranha Piranha, that's the title, is, is not an asylum flick. Is that disingenuous to the trash film fan that they do that? Or to the mainstream fan that they're trying to sell this to? Because I think it's so sleazy, I'm going to say both. Uh, there's a film, a little sci-fi movie I like called Grand Tour Disaster in Time. It's a, a David Toohey film before he you know, did the pitch black films and that. And they uh, repackage that as Timescape. And it's, and it just irritates me to no end when they do that. It just it, it, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, obviously, it, 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 for us, it would be double dipping. Right. We and without knowing if we bought it. And uh, for the unsuspecting, it might be buying a film that they really didn't want in the first place. Maybe there was a reason they didn't see it in the first the first time around, right? I think it's really, really disingenuous. Because, I think it's sleazy. Well, because, I mean, but how many people were going to have looked at this eight-movie set and been able to notice, wait a minute, why does Attack of the Giant Leeches now look like an asylum film? You know, instead, instead of that great retro poster art that the original had, they went with some Photoshop nightmare that is completely unrepresentative of the film. I think that is actually taking more advantage of the mainstream audience because someone like me was immediately able to go, bullshit. Well, that, that's what irritates me uh, about something like Near Dark. Did you see the new cover that came out at Walmart when that was re-released? Oh, you mean the Twilight cover? Yep. I do have to give one piece of credit here, though. Fair is fair. I have now talked to some people of the younger generation that have now seen Near Dark, and they may not have. And guess why they saw it? They bought that edition. There's part of me that says, I guess there's good here, too, because it's exposing a new generation to the types of films that, like, hey, when I did Movie Apocalypse, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to expose people to these little movies that they probably wouldn't otherwise seek out. So is or what you're saying is that it's good that they, that they use misrepresentation to get a younger generation to watch this, whereas, like, let's say Attack of the Giant Leeches, which is a really fun, stupid movie, if they had used the very 50s-looking poster art, that people would ignore it, but if it looks like an asylum film, some stupid 15-year-old kid's going to go, eh, what the hell? Isn't that, isn't that a weird arrogance that, well, at least they saw it? I mean, I, like one of my teachers in school was al <laughs> was always when they were talking about reading. Was always about it, it. It doesn't matter if the book was any good; at least you're reading. And it's like, no, you should be reading something good. I'm not saying I agree with it. So you know what? If if that's what it takes for this generation to see some great movies, guess I'm saying yay. <laughs> well, I, I, I think I think, and again, this is coming from a place of arrogance. I think there's a different dynamic to when we were growing up. Because nowadays with Netflix and all this and the full movies that are on YouTube and all that, people have to seek out the films, which we did as kids and whatnot. But people have to seek out these films. On the other hand, we had UHF television where we didn't seek out these movies. We watched whatever was on after the news on your local UHF station. It didn't matter if they were showing Maneater of Hydra or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Invasion of the Body Snatchers or The Amazing Colossal Man. We watched it. Three quarters of the trash cinema I, I grew up watching, I would never have sought out. I watched it because it was on. And I'm glad I saw that. Nowadays, kids don't do that. Nowadays, the younger generation, they have to look for the movie that they want to watch. And, you know, it even comes down to, like, Joe Bob Briggs and Elvira. We watched their show. I never watched a Joe Bob Briggs show going, oh, he's showing that movie I really want this week. It was, I'm going to watch Joe Bob Briggs and whatever movie he is showing this week. I think the dynamic has shifted, don't you? Well, I will agree with you, but I have to point out, I did not have your experience. Uh, we didn't have a UHF here. So I, I actually did 
find these movies at the video store. We had, I was, we were lucky when video hit this small town had this guy who opened up not one, but two gas stations, one at each end of the town, Curvans North, Curvans South. And this guy did everything. And I mean, everything, these places would grow and grow. They'd be uh, ice cream, come pizza, come gas station, come convenience store. And yes, video store. And this cat did not know anything. He was, he was the guy that the video distributors saw coming from a mile away. And they would lie and they would, oh, this is what all the kids want. So this guy had everything, man. And I mean everything. He had from Italian uh, sleaze cinema to modern classics. So, you know, we had everything from Dario Gento films to Maltese Falcon. And there was just a plethora of great, bizarre titles and I would go in there and we would have that day where you could get three for a dollar or, you know, for three, three for three dollars for three days. And I would pick the weirdest freaking movies they had because I loved that stuff. I did. I genuinely just loved it. I was I lived in a small town. We didn't have a lot to do here. And see, to me, I watched I grew up on late night 3 a.m. UHF TV. I grew up on on the early days of cable. And remember, because for the early days of cable, they needed programming. So they were showing movies that to this day don't have a VHS release, let alone a DVD or a Blu-ray release. There are movies that only exist from old TV broadcasts because they were never put out anywhere else. Like The Humanoid Woman, that's never had a home video release ever. You can find copies, though, because someone recorded it off of UHF television. That's what I did. Like I said, with Elvira and Joe Bob. I didn't go, oh, I don't really like the movie they're showing this week. I'm not going to watch Elvira. It was, I'm going to watch Elvira and whatever movie she happens to be showing this week. I, I constantly hear people try and say, oh, Netflix is the new UHF television. They say the same thing, you, Netflix is the new video store. No, it's not. Not really. And no, I wouldn't. I mean, I, I agree that you can discover a lot. I like them for that reason, but no, they're not the same thing. No, they're not. And I keep just getting called to let it go. Stop living in the past and embrace the now. A former coworker of ours was constantly, Netflix is the future, get used to it. And I was like, no, I don't have to. Why should I? As a film nerd, why should I have to be used to Netflix? I don't like Netflix. I don't like streaming. Do you think that is the more prevalent attitude among the hardcore film nerds? Or do you think most of them are going... It's on Netflix. I'll just watch it there. There will be those who love watching movies on VHS because that's what they saw uh, growing up. And there's a nostalgic attachment to that. For me, I have always been about seeing the movie. I want to see the movie and I want to see closest representation to what the director intended. I love stories. That's what I love. I love good stories and I love them told well. Or I love schlock. I mean, obviously, I love schlock. But I'm saying I don't care how it gets to me. Uh, VHS, and here comes Blast Me on Radiodrome, I don't give two cents about VHS. It means nothing to me. I care about the movies. I've always cared about the movies. And, you know, if Netflix is the only way for me to see a movie like, say, Odd Thomas, which I liked, and it was the only way I could see it at the time, I'm all for it. And it is the wave of the future, but it doesn't necessarily mean it has to alter the love and passion of the past. For those who love the VHS or the DVDs or whatever, The Hunt, it's still out there. And you know what? It's like, yeah, the Netflix is the way of the future. But hey, indulge a little bit. Go go check out some of those movies that you can buy for 50 cents at the local Goodwill. Check them out and see what you might find. You never know. You could find a gem that you're not going to see on Amazon or Netflix or YouTube. And it's kind of special when you discover something like that. What I actually find, I take a weird, arrogant pride when I see the internet critics, the YouTubers, the Channel Awesomes discover some weird film that's you know never got released anywhere except VHS or whatnot, and th- they treat it like this is the most awesome thing ever, and I'm and and I and then I go and grab my VHS and I go, yeah, I've been watching it for 20 years. Way to catch the <laughs> fuck up. Uh, that, I, that, I really do get an arrogant pride out of that, which does, I guess, make me a hipster, doesn't it? I guess, but then if that's the case, I have to be a hipster too, so we got to meet each other at the coffee shop on our bikes. Speaking of that, we do have to wrap up. So where would Fred Fritz be with the obscure, unrated director's cut with hard-coded Japanese subtitles? (laughs) Well, currently he can only be found on Facebook at Movie Apocalypse. I can be found at 1201beyond.com. 
contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Now, guys, remember, part of the fun is the hunt, but at the same time, being a film nerd, it should make us more inclusive of one another, not more exclusive of those who are not in the club. And I am guilty of it as well. So I need to learn my own lesson here. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.